pray uh, before we get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here as always. We ask for your blessing upon things that you would just help us to learn and grow as we go deeper in you in all ways and all things. Thank you for this time, and we just pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless this time. Let your spirit guide and teach, and for all those classrooms and kids in the back, you just take care of that in your name. Amen. Alrighty, we are going to continue our study here through Acts chapter 10. If you weren't with us a couple weeks ago, last week we took a break and did some specials on Easter. What introduced us to, back at the beginning, I should say two weeks ago in Acts chapter 10, was this idea of the gospel message going out to Cornelius. And this is important because Cornelius is a Gentile, which means a non-Jew. And it's important that the gospel message has gone out to him. And we had this divine appointment a couple weeks ago, Cornelius has this vision dream from God. Peter has this vision dream from God. God brings these two loose ends together. And next thing you know, Peter gets a chance to present the gospel message to the Gentiles. Now, to the most of us here, that doesn't really seem like it's that big a deal. But we have to think back 2,000 years ago, this idea, this concept of a Gentile, a non-Jew, having the same opportunity and access to God as a Jew, unheard of. Gentiles back then were these unclean heathen people. You did everything you can to stay away from, and now the Lord is opening the doors of heaven to them. That's a hard concept to grasp 2,000 years ago. So what we have here this morning now is now Peter is going to come meet Cornelius, present to him the gospel, and what a beautiful picture it is. There's not a lot of deep theological things going on here this morning, but it's a good review of things that are going on. The Bible usually refers to things in two ways. It talks about solid food, and it talks about milk. So today is that nice, cold glass of milk, and I hope it blesses you and refreshes you as you go through this. Now, we're also going to try to do something today, which is really kind of unheard of for us. We're going to try to do 42 verses this morning, 42 verses. So we'll get done around three. And uh, we'll have plenty of time. Actually, we want to do it all together because it flows so nicely, and a lot of it is a review, but it's important to get the full context of everything. So with that being said, Acts chapter 10, verse 24, it says, In the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. We'll stop there real quick. That's a little bit of a tie-in review to what we did two weeks ago. Cornelius knows Peter is coming. Cornelius is not just waiting for Peter himself. Cornelius gathers together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius was so excited to see what God had to say. He wanted everybody else to know it as well. And I think that is important because he cared about his close loved ones and friends. See, here's the thing. If you want to share the gospel, you first have to experience the gospel personally. Cornelius knew this news that was coming was important. He wanted everybody to hear it. We have known Jesus, so we need to take that same excitement and say, I want other people to know. To share the gospel, you first have to experience it. If you know what God has done for you, if you know how Christ has saved you out of hell and opened the doors of heaven for you, that spurs you on to want to tell everybody else. See, this is what I realized. So often at church, we're up here saying, go tell people about Jesus. Go make disciples. Go tell them what Christ has done for you. And then what happens is some people sit there and say, well, I, what has Christ done for me? I mean, what is so exciting that Christ has done this for me that I feel like I have to go tell other people? Boy, have you really experienced the gospel? Really experienced what Jesus has done for you? Dawn and I were talking earlier this week. There was something that was going to be going on uh, locally here. And it was this idea on how to um, get your church excited about sharing the gospel, to get your people pumped up, to go other, tell other people about Jesus. And Dawn and I were kind of talking about it. 
going back and forth about, you know, do you go, do you not go type of thing. And I realized, boy, if you have to get someone pumped up to say, this is what Jesus has done for me, I think there's a breakdown in the system. Because what Christ has done for you is so amazing, you don't have to have a pep rally to tell you to go tell other people about it. To me, that's the equivalent of someone coming up to me and saying, James, I want to spend some time with you each week to tell you how excited you are to be married to Dawn. I want, you to, I want to tell you how great your kids are so you can go tell other people. No, I'm just excited to be married to Dawn. I'm so excited I'll share the good, the bad, and the ugly. I don't care. I will tell you everything. I'm excited about my wife. I'm excited about my kids. I don't need to be told to tell people. I, I willfully wear a ring on my finger to say I'm married. I'll tell you about my kids. I don't need somebody telling me how to tell other people about my family. Now, some of you may be saying, well, maybe the purpose of this is to help you what to say, how to say it. I agree with that. I have no problems with that. But also part of the element of it was get people excited to tell people about Jesus. I disagree with that. If you have been touched by the gospel, there automatically is something inside of you that says, I want to tell other people about this. If you look throughout the New Testament, any time Jesus cast out a demon or healed a blind man, we're going to talk about this in a little bit here, those people wanted to follow Jesus. They were so touched by what Christ did, they wanted to tell other people about it. Cornelius is so excited by what God has in store for him. I'm getting all my relatives, all my friends, just come here. I don't know what they're going to say, but just come here. And see what it is. So what happens? Verse 25. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? A couple things there. First off, look at verses 25 and 26. Cornelius sees Peter, falls down, begins to worship him. That's scary. There's this little phrase we like to use out here called rock star Christianity. Where that pastor becomes such a, almost on a pedestal type of thing. And it's like, well, what did he say? What does he think? No, no, no. It doesn't matter what the person is. It's the Holy Spirit moving and working in them. And we got to be so careful that we never place any person on a pedestal. Never. You know, every year we go to this pastor's conference and absolutely love going. We've gone for about the last 15 years or so. And there's always what I call the big hitter. They bring in this big name guy. And you look at it, and you look at it, and they'll release this in July of who the teachers are going to be. So we'll get this in July, and you'll see this guy's coming. It's like, oh, wow, this guy's coming. I can't wait to hear him. And there's usually three speakers. There's the big guy, middle guy that you kind of know a little bit, no-name guy. I have gone now, I think, 16 times. The no-name guy is always the best one. Always the best one. It's not that the big guy's not good, but it's that no-name guy that you go in. It's like, yeah, I'm just here. I mean, I'll see what he has to say. Boy, the same spirit speaks through everybody. And we got to be careful that we don't ever start elevating somebody to any position that they shouldn't be in. And I think it's important here. And we don't know how Peter said this in verse 26 of stand up, I myself am also a man. My personal opinion 
I think he said it firmly. I don't think he said it mean. I don't think he was harsh. But I think the point had to come across clearly. Stand up. No, Peter's not going to take anything. He's not going to take any glory. You've got to remember, it's not too many years before this that Peter just denied Jesus three times. That's still in Peter's mind. Peter knows who he is. In a few chapters, Paul's going to go on a missionary journey, and they're going to be so impressed with Paul, they're going to think that he's a Greek god. That bothered Paul. He ripped his clothes and ran and said no. We have to be careful that we never deflect any praise, glory, or anything onto us. It all goes back to him. I get up here every Sunday, and I know what type of mess I am. And the Lord, still through his Holy Spirit, blesses it. I find it interesting right here. At the end of verse 29, So, Cornelius, I'm here. I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? Why, why, why did you ask for me? Let's build on this a little bit. Can you go to Mark chapter 10? I always find it fascinating in the Bible when people ask questions. Mark chapter 10. Peter knows there's a divine appointment going on. Peter knows that God has supernaturally ordained this. There's a vision. Go. There's going to be guys that show up. Go. Peter knows there's something big going on. Cornelius, what is it that you want? What you see here in Mark chapter 10 are people talking to Jesus and Jesus asking them a question. I love it when Jesus asks a question in the Bible. He never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a question to probe them to see what their answer is. So look here in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Boy, is that not a setup? Elias, our oldest, he'll come to me every now and then. He'll say something like this. Dad... I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to say yes to it. (laughs) I mean, what am I supposed to say to that? These two are straightforward. Ken, in our third one, is deceitfully. He'll come up and say, Dad, just say yes. Uh, No, this is like a blank check. I'm not doing that in any way whatsoever. So, verse 35, teacher, we want you to do forever we ask. They're, They're coming, now put yourself in this position. They're coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus... Whatever we ask you, just say yes. God plays along, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's a big question. Now, this is not genie in a bottle, Jesus. But God just said in human form, what do you want me to do for you? Now, remember that. Now, jump ahead a little bit. Because now at the bottom here of chapter 10, we have a man that is blind. So this man is blind. And what happens, verse 51. Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? So we have two instances in the same chapter where Jesus is going up to somebody and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine if you had Christ in human form standing in front of you right now saying, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask for? That's a, that's a pretty big, what would you ask for? So let's see what John and James asked for. Verse 37. They said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. James and John basically say, for all of eternity, we want to sit in positions of power and authority and glory right beside you. What a selfish, selfish request. That's, they have their one shot with God, and they say, elevate us for all of eternity. What about the blind man in verse 51? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher, great teacher, elevated teacher, that I may receive my sight. Okay, well, that sounds kind of selfish too, doesn't it? 
I mean, if anything you could ask for, I ask that I could see. I mean, the guy's not asking for world peace. He's not asking to feed the hungry. He's saying, I want to receive my sight. Now, here's the problem. We look at both of those answers and we say selfishness. The problem is sometimes we don't understand someone's answer may have another layer to it that is not selfish in any way whatsoever. And no way. We can look at this John James. Boy, selfish. You want glory. Blind man, verse 51. Selfish. You want your sight. Kenan, the deceitful one, he came up to me a while ago and he asked for candy. Now, Kenan's got this thing. My goodness, he'll ask 10, 20 times a day. Walk in the kitchen. Dad, can I have a piece of candy? No, just leaves. Five minutes later, Dad, can I have a piece of candy? No. Just this ongoing circle of it to the point of where you stop him and you love him and you sit down and you take his shoulders, not me, and you say, Kenan, I'm not giving you candy right now. Okay. Five minutes later, ask again. Point is, he came up and asked for candy. No, Kenan. I mean, he kept asking. No. I found out later the reason he was asking for candy is because Layden got his, Layden lost his. Kenan was asking for some to give to Layden. He was trying to be the good big brother. I didn't know his motive behind his answer, or his question, I should say. So we look at these guys' answers, and we can say, well, they're both selfish. Well, let's see what the motive is behind it. So verse 37, we want glory, we want power, we want privilege, authority. Verse 38, Jesus says, do you really realize what you're asking? Verse 39, they said, we do. Jesus says, I don't think you guys get it. Look at the response, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. You want to cause displeasure at work, at home, with family, with friends, with relatives? Just be selfish. When you are selfish and the only thing you think about is you and your attention, your glory, your thoughts, your feelings, it creates displeasure, as the Bible says in verse 41, with anybody around you. James and John, they just wanted it for them. What happens, verse 41, they have to now work with these guys for a while yet, knowing that they wanted all the glory and attention. Well, what about the blind guy? That was selfish. Verse 51, the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Jesus, verse 52, then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, why did the blind man get his sight back? Because Jesus knew his heart and motives. Verse 52, when the man received his sight, he became a follower of Christ. The motive for the blind man was faith. The motive for the blind man was not selfishness. It was, I know you are the only one, Jesus, that can heal this. I know you're the only one that can fix this problem. And he follows Christ. James and John, they just wanted glory for all of eternity. The blind man was a follower of Christ. Now think about that. They both had an opportunity. What do you want from me? One responded in selfishness. The other one responded in following Christ. We've got to be careful when we start demanding and asking things. And so when I see back to Acts chapter 10 now, when I see Peter saying to Cornelius, what is it that you want? What a great question. I have people contact me, call me a lot, and, and uh, you know, the conversation somewhat spiritual, somewhat not. You stop and you just say to them, what is it that you want? What are you looking for? So what is the answer here? Verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting into this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he'll speak to you. 
So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. A little bit of a review of what we talked about two weeks ago. I'm going to repeat this point. I know we've said this point before, but it's important. Every now and then I run into the person that's concerned about the person in the Amazon and Africa and Asia and Australia that's never heard the gospel. I firmly believe by studying out Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 8, other references in the Bible, if you have somebody who has an open heart for the Lord, God will bring somebody into that person's life to spread to them the gospel message. No one is going to die saying, I really wish I could have heard about salvation, but no one told me. This was a divine appointment. Cornelius wanted to know. Peter was willing to go. God brings the two together. That's what the Lord does. He's moving puzzle pieces around to bring people together into a relationship with him. Cornelius' heart was open, so God ordains Peter to go do that. And we just need to be open to do this. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You just need to be open to whenever the Lord calls you to do something. See, there's this phrase I like to use that's called, I call it hardcore evangelism. Hardcore evangelism is, there's a heaven, there's a hell. Jesus takes you out of hell. Unless you accept Jesus Christ, you're going to die. That's all true. And there's certain times where you need to be blunt, to the point, straightforward. Most of the time, what I see in my Christian walk is I'm just planting seeds and seeing what comes up. You remember the story of the sower and the seed? There's the stony soil, there's the seed that falls by the wayside, there's the stone, excuse me, the seed that falls in the thorns. And there's the good ground. The good ground. Now the problem is sometimes you don't know what ground you got. And you're just kind of casting out seeds. Other times you know you got good ground. You just don't know. What we're called to do, and here's our word that we've been talking about for the last couple months. We're called to make disciples. We're called to go out, and since we know Christ, is to now go tell other people about Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Disciples make disciples. So my life is a calling to tell people about Christ. Sometimes it's straightforward. Other times it's just planting seed. I had a situation that popped up recently. Somebody who never has been out here to church. Um, we've talked throughout the years, known this person, gosh, 15 years or something like that. Never been out here, but kind of keep running in the same circle with church stuff, etc. They're what I call, they kind of have a flirting relationship with the church. You talk to them, it's like, I'll see you Sunday. It's like, no, I, I know I won't. But they say they'll be here. So I was talking to this person, and their life is falling apart. I mean, it's, it's falling apart. There's no way around that. And so we're just talking on the phone about their life falling apart. And I said to them, you know, I, I've known you for a lot of years. And I know for these last few years, you've done life your way. And I said, look, we're a gotcha. I said, as a Christian, I believe God has a better plan for your life. And I believe that his plan works. And I believe that if you'd come to church, open up your Bible, start to really study and realize what his plan is for your life, that's where the Lord wants you to be. Now, it wasn't heaven, hell, Jesus, salvation, but it was seed planting. God has a plan for you. God has a system that works. Let's try that system. And we'll see where the Lord goes with it. There may be a crop. Wouldn't it be great in a few months if that person then starts really understanding who Christ is and has a relationship? It may be a month, maybe a year. I don't know. But it's just planting seeds. And that's most of what we do. You're going to leave here today. You're going to go home. You're going to go to work tomorrow, today, go to school, what have you. Plant seeds. Make disciples. Don't be afraid to talk about the Lord. And look how simple it is to talk about God. 
Look at this. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now what he's going to do is say what this message is. And if you look over these next six verses, Peter explains the gospel so clearly, so perfectly, dare we say so simply. First one, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Point number one, the signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus reveal to us that he is God. That's the first point. Verse 39. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on the tree. This man who was also God, verse 39, died. Verse 40. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. The man that was now dead rose again. Verse 41, not to all the people, but to witnesses and chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. People saw him. This was real. He ate, he drank. This wasn't some spirit. This was an actual resurrection. Verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is who ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He has called us to be witnesses, make disciples. Verse 43, to him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. You may have forgiveness for your sins. Six verses. Just sum it up. Six verses. Verse 38, Jesus was God. Verse 39, he died. Verse 40, he rose. Verse 41, it really happened. Verse 42, I want to tell you about it. Verse 43, you can have forgiveness of sins. How simple is that? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Corinthians where it talks about the simplicity of Jesus. How simple. In six verses, Peter just so concisely explains everything you need to know. Jesus was God who died. He rose. Let me tell you about him and you can have forgiveness of sins. That's all he did. That's his message. That's a six verse message. We're going to spend 40 minutes today with me rambling on. Peter explains it all in six verses. Back in my office, I have this shelf, and I, and I collect all the different things I find about God and books, etc. And I like to collect different catechisms from different religions and groups. That way, if there's ever a question that pops up, we can actually go to that group, that denomination, that religion, their actual catechism, and say, let's see what they really believe. And some of these catechisms I have are bigger and thicker than the Bible. Now, that always blows my mind. The book to explain your religion has more words in it than the Bible itself. I think there's a breakdown in the system there a little bit. That your religion is that complex that to describe it and to define it takes a book that's thicker and bigger than the Bible. The simplicity of Jesus. One more time, verses 38 through 43 he was God who died, who rose. He's real. Let me tell you about him. And you can have forgiveness of sins. That's Peter's message. What's the result of that? Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. 
And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay with him a few days. The Spirit comes down. This is important. Because by the Holy Spirit falling on them, it shows God is in this. You know, the Bible uses the word sealed with the Holy Spirit. It shows that the Lord has taken you and has now sealed you. You are His child. So basically what is happening here is the Jews used to be able to say, Oh, we're special. You know, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came upon us. We started speaking in tongues. Yeah, we're special. Oh, the same thing just happened to the Gentiles. Holy Spirit came upon them. They started speaking in tongues. God opened the same door to the Gentiles that he opened to the Jews. That's so vitally important. Now, us living 2,000 years later, we're all unclean heathen Gentiles. We don't think it's that big a deal. Guys, this is a big deal. The gates of heaven were just open to everybody. To everybody through the same Holy Spirit, through the same Jesus Christ. Peter's response, verse 47, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You always see in the book of Acts, salvation followed immediately by water baptism. Water baptism is so vitally important, it is. Now the problem is we have run into these extremes with water baptism. One extreme, water baptism is salvation. The other extreme, water baptism is important, yeah I get it, but we don't have to worry about it. I think part of a growing walk with Christ is if you have been saved, there is a time where you choose to publicly go get baptized. And you see that consistently throughout the book of Acts. We've said this many times before. Baptism is symbolic. When you get into the water, the water represents you being cleansed. When you go into the water, it represents you dying. And as you come out of the water, it represents newness of life. That idea of Newness, that's the symbolism of it. We just did a baptism service uh, a month or two months ago, I can't remember, and we're already planning another one because we had some people come up and say, hey, I want to get baptized. If you feel led to get baptized, come see us. We'll mark your name down. And it always opens up questions. I was baptized as a baby. Should I be baptized as an adult? I was baptized as an adult, but I fell away. Should I be baptized again? If you've got any questions, just come talk to us about it. We believe it's a great step in your walk with Christ. It's a public confession. It's a public example of I want to serve the Lord. So they got baptized. They stay. Amen. That would be great if we could stop right here. But we can't. We can't stop because verse 1, chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. God just opened the doors of heaven to everybody. And there's a group of people that aren't happy about that. There always, always will be the complainers, and the haters. I've shared this story with you, this joke I should say with you before. The way I look at anything we do out here at Harvest Fellowship, I call it the 25% rule. Whatever we do, 25% of you will love it, 25% of you will hate it, and 50% won't care. That, it just seems to happen. No matter what happens, there's a segment that says, Pastor, love it. Love everything. And there's a fourth of you that's, no matter what happens, you're just not happy. We could have an altar call and 100 people would come forward and get saved and be like, yeah, you could have done it better. You know, you could have done that better. There's always going to be that person that's just not happy. You may live with them. You may work with them. 
you need to realize they just don't have joy in the Lord. Because look what happens here. The doors of salvation are open to the Gentiles. And what happens? Verse 3, you ate with Gentiles? Wow. Can't believe it. You ate with uncircumcised men. Where have we lost this? Now, we don't struggle with this today. Circumcision, uncircumcision, we don't. But we still struggle with this today. It's just not circumcision. It's just other things. Boy, we've really screwed up as the body of Christ in this world today. Jesus came and hung out with lepers, tax collectors who were hated, prostitutes. He hung out with the lost and rejected of society. That's what he came for. But yet today, if you would go hang out with the lost of society, there's going to be some person in a church clicking their little tongue at you saying, I can't believe you talked to that person. Christianity, by its definition, is messy. It's completely messy. We are these dirty, rotten people that need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And so therefore, when we get saved, it's not that we're better than anybody, but it is my calling, it is your calling to go make disciples. So therefore, I need to get my hands dirty. And why is it that we've reached a point as a body of Christ where we, we don't want to get our hands dirty anymore with people. Like I said, Jesus was the lepers and the prostitutes, but my goodness, can you imagine if someone brought somebody like that into church? There would be some churches that would shut the door on them. We have lost that. And you see this 2,000 years ago, there's still the people that say, can't, nope, not going to do it, nope. Come on, this is what we're here to do. This is what we're supposed to do, is to go to the lost of society and show them the answer is in Christ. But yet, we spend almost all of our life staying away from certain geographical areas and certain people, so that way we don't have to put ourselves in an uncomfortable position. We're Christianity, by definition, is following Christ, who put himself in the most uncomfortable positions you can imagine. I think sometimes as Christians, we need to be a little more willing to get our hands dirty. And I see Peter here. The church really could have changed at this point. Peter could have caved. Peter could have stopped and said, you're, you're right, sorry, sorry guys. Well, let's let the Gentiles in, but we'll give them a separate seating section. No. Peter goes on, verses 4 through 16, re-sums up everything that just happened and basically says, guys, this is of God. And he does it. We've already studied this stuff. Peter talks about in verses 4 on, I had the vision, the Lord sent me, I said no, God said go, so I went. And as I went there, I met this guy. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Peter basically says, guys, they, they got the same Holy Spirit we did. They did the whole tongue thing just like we did. God gave them the exact same privilege and opportunity that we did. So who am I to argue with God? Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles 
repentance to life. Have you ever seen somebody driven to silence? Because the Lord so revealed something or said something, convicted them, whatever, where they could not even speak. That's exactly what happened. These guys, their mouths are just shut. Now, I think that phrase, and they glorified God, is vitally important. Because if it just said, when they heard these things, they became silent. Well, it's like, okay, there's nothing we can do. We have to accept this. They glorified God. They were so awestruck, so pushed back by this, they they didn't know what to say. Have you ever had a time like that where maybe you're sitting at the kitchen table and you're reading your Bible and there's this verse that you've been looking for, but you didn't even know you were looking for it. And you read it and it just hits you, it impacts you. And you lean back in your chair and you, you can't even speak. That's exactly what I needed to hear, Lord. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Or maybe you're talking to somebody and this spiritual point comes out and the point is good. And they don't even know what to say. I had a phone call with somebody a while ago, and, and we got a good open relationship, and we disagreed on this point. And he was wrong, he just didn't know it. And so he, we disagreed on this point. So we're going back and forth on it, and finally I made this point, and as I'm making this point, as I hear the words coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, that's good. You know, I know it's not me, that's good. And then there was silence. We were on the phone. So, you know that silence that you almost think like you lost the phone call type of silence? And I, and you know, I'm the type of guy that if I don't know what to say, I still say something. So I said, oh, that was a good one, wasn't it? Wasn't it? You know, silence. God uses silence to make sure that his point gets across. His point gets across. These people were so taken back by what the Lord did, they had nothing they could say. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Silence stops the other person's mouth to make them stop and say, Peter quotes a verse, and that silences them. Scripture silences people. People can also silence us, too, when we're wrong. A while ago, Dawn and I were having a conversation. And a little bit of background before I guess I get into that conversation. We were teaching the boys the fruits of the Spirit. That's what we were going through for devotions. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we're going through these fruits of the Spirit. And so Dawn and I were having a a conversation. The conversation was starting to become tense. We didn't see eye to eye. We didn't agree on it. It wasn't like this knockdown, drag out type of thing. It was just like, you know, we're not seeing this. And and you could tell it was starting to become tense. So in in the middle of this conversation, Elias comes up to me and, and hands me this envelope. And on the envelope, and I got the envelope at home. I should have brought it in. It's covered in little hearts. And it says, uh, Daddy, open now, please. It's an emergency, open now. All this other type of stuff. You know how kids are. So Dawn and I are having this conversation. He hands me this thing. It's like, okay, fine. So as I'm, as I'm listening to Dawn being wrong, you know, I'm looking at this, and I open it up. And, and I open it up. He has written out all the fruits of the Spirit. And then he wrote on the inside of it, Dad, stop arguing with Mom. <laughs> Silence. Wow. What are you supposed to say to that? The fruits of the Spirit written right out there, handed to you by your eight-year-old kid, right there. So I, I gave it back to him, and I said, you keep this. And anytime you see that happening again, you come, just hand that to me. Silence. It just completely silences you. Because what are you supposed to say? Here I am teaching my children the fruit of the Spirit. 
Where am I living the fruit of the Spirit? See, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about being silent because of the Lord. But you have to get the background of it first. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from filthy lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now we're building up to a point here. First point that Peter wants to make is, this is not your home. I mean, it's not your home. You are a sojourner, you're a pilgrim, you're just passing through. You know, we have this little phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans. The Bible basically says, when in Rome, don't be like the Romans. And so, you're passing through, don't act like the world, don't be like the world. Verse 12, let your conduct honorable. So that way, when they want to say something evil against you, verse 12, they got nothing to say. Because you're living this pure life in an impure world. Okay, that makes sense. Then he builds on it, verse 11, submitting to the government and the ordinances and the kings and the governors. But then verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You want to silent, silence, I should say, your critics? Live honorable. Live blameless so they have nothing to say. I remember one time a guy called me up and he was talking about how um, everybody at work thought he was a jerk. That's what he said. Everybody at work thinks I'm a jerk. I said, are you? Silence. He goes, yeah, sometimes I am. And it was just that epiphany moment, just like that. Are you? You know, somebody comes up, well, you know what? Everybody always comes up and says, I complain about everything. Well, do you? Yeah, maybe I do. Somebody comes up and says, I'm always grouchy. Are you? It's amazing how sometimes we're put to silence when we just really realize the truth. Back in Acts 11, the Jews that were upset about the Gentiles getting saved, what were they supposed to say? You're right. The same Holy Spirit came upon them as came upon us. There's nothing to say. So you want to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men? Live honorably. So that way they can't, well, you do, well, I don't know what you do because I never see you do anything wrong. I just silenced it. I, you know, one of the phrases I like to use a lot when talking to somebody, when they get really worked up, when they start getting really emotional about things, and they start making what I call these grandiose statements. I am never talking to them again. I am never doing that again. I am never going there again. I usually stop them and say, is that what the Lord led you to do? Or when you, when you prayed about that, that's what God told you to do? Usually it's silence. Because at that point, they need to stop and say, is that really what the Lord wants me to do? Is that, did I really pray over and see? It's amazing when somebody comes up and they're so full of emotion and they just, I, whatever, these big never statements, whatever. Is that what the Lord led you to do? It's amazing how God uses silence through the Holy Spirit to convict us of all things. So I encourage you, it works both ways. Using Scripture, using the truth of God's Word, will silence the critics in your life. But the flip side, people can silence us also as well if we're not living that honorable life in Christ Jesus. Let the word be the knife that cuts to the heart, that grows us, that impacts us, that changes us. And it will really silence those areas in our life that are wrong, and it will really silence the critics. We know the truth. It's amazing how often as Christians we're defending 
You know, the Bible says we're supposed to be ready to give a defense of the gospel, which means an explanation for what we believe. But it's amazing how often as Christians I see us defending the truth. It's almost like we have to prove to them we're right. I know we're right. So let's walk in it. We know God's word is true. Let's walk in it in the confidence of it. And that puts to silence the critics that come up against. Marv, if you want to come forward for the final song. Remember... Peter, opening the door of the gospel to the Gentiles.